every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Kevin Tate, Chief Marketing Officer at Clearbit, a marketing data engine for customer interactions that helps businesses grow. Kevin has more than 24 years of sales and marketing as a two-time CRO and three-time CMO, and has held many other senior leadership roles throughout his career. On this episode, Kevin discusses the importance of speed when it comes to capturing customer intent, marketing's role in creating a compelling promise for a company's product, and why websites need to look to mobile-first experiences as inspiration sooner rather than later. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Kevin Tate, Chief Marketing Officer at Clearbit, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a special guest. Kevin, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Ian. It's like to be here. Yeah, excited to have you on the show for multiple reasons. But one among them is that we are a customer of Clearbit and we love Clearbit and we use it for, for our podcast. So excited to chat about all things Clearbit and your background. So let's get into it. Tell us a little bit about your role at Clearbit. Absolutely. So I got to Clearbit in May. So it's been what, seven, seven months? Yeah, about seven months now. And boy, what, a, what an exciting time to join a fast-growing company in a really, really fast-moving industry. So Clearbit participates in the, the MarTech space and especially the sort of evolving role of, of data in that space. And one of the things that has, I've come to really appreciate is that Clearbit has, we've got, we've got a really a great reputation and, and awareness among sort of the growth practitioners, right? So the people, the data-driven marketers and the, and the companies using that. But part of my role is, is to take some of what we're learning and, and experiencing and finding with those customers and how do we bring that to a broader audience, right? And so as, as CMO there, how do I take the, the growth engineering from our customers and from our product team and from our own team and then bring that to data-driven teams across industries? So that's what I've been up to. And taking a step back, what was your first job in demand gen? Oh, that is a good question. So in 1996, <laughs> uh, I worked for a company called iPro, which stood for Internet Profiles Corporation. This was my first web job. And this is going to sound silly now, but the idea, which was very novel in 96, was if we can collect information about people's demographics and psychographics and in the form of an internet profile, then, then that could be shared with advertisers to websites to help them get advertising because they could understand their audience and say, hey, look, these are the types of people visiting my site. And so you should give me ad dollars. And this is 96. So getting ad dollars to work on websites was a novel and unproven concept. So anyway, it's just kind of weird. because I, I, Until you asked me that question, that's actually kind of what Clearbit is still doing today, 
right? Helping people understand who their customers are so they can run their business better. So, wow, I'm having kind of like a full circle moment here. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a tale as old as time that we want to know more information about our prospects and customers, right? It kind of speaks to the longevity of, of a solution like Clearbit. And we'll get into that here in a second, that it's like the work is never finished, right? right. For something like this, yeah. because we want to know more and more and more and more. And that's the job of of every sales rep is to figure that stuff out. And it's the job of marketing to get our brand message out into the market so that it reaches those people and we can serve them. Yes, our work is never done. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. What does Clearbit do and who are your customers? So Clearbit's secret power, the center of what we do is that we can tell a team or a system everything about a company, how many people work there, what industry they're in, what technologies they use, all the geo and fermo and demographic information. We can tell them all that based on just one data point, right? So just knowing a domain or just knowing an email address or, or just having them visit your website. So that's at the seed of, of what Clearbit does. And what we've created is a platform that lets companies put that, that context, that full picture to work across all the different sort of systems and, and teams that need it. So a big part of what customers do with Clearbit is taking that full picture and making it available to their CRM and marketing automation systems and making sure that they know everything they can about their, their current customers and leads. But then there's this other area, which is a little higher in the funnel, which is how do I take that full picture and use it to better understand and convert the people who are showing intent on my website? How do I treat them in a way that's going to be more relevant? Show the big companies, the big logos and the smaller companies, the smaller logos, that kind of thing. And so we talk about that as how do you activate this real-time intelligence across your stack to drive real meaningful outcomes in how you acquire and convert and conduct your revenue operations. And so talk to me about the types of companies that buy Clearbit. It's a really good question. It's one that I've been spending some time looking into since, since I got here. So we're very fortunate to have a lot of customers, a thousand plus customers across all kinds of industries. I think broadly, they break into a few buckets. We have a lot of companies focused on a PLG, our product-led growth motion. And for companies who have a lot of customers in the, say, the, the free trial stage, or they've got tens of thousands or even millions of companies that are an early stage of discovering the product, having that full picture and being able to understand and everything about a company helps those PLG teams know where to prioritize their time or understand signals that suggest that someone is about to go from sort of trial to buy and create expected value around those types of customers. So so those types of companies are product-led growth internet companies that are trying to be as smart as they can about how they prioritize pipeline. Then there's a whole other set that are really these days focused more around an ABM motion. So account-based marketing. And I listened recently to the episode with John Miller, which was great, right? And, and I, I, everything John said, I agree with. I think ABM has so reshaped 
how companies look at and prioritize their go-to-market efforts. But in that context, companies use ClearBit as this, this data foundation for all the different systems and processes that they need to be smart. And so this idea of sort of a smart stack that you're organizing around something like an ABM motion, uh, ClearBit plays this foundational role. And those companies tend to be kind of all over the map. You know, they're basically anybody who needs to understand and prioritize their funnel to increase conversion. So it's it's really interesting to see. And it really crosses a lot of industries. And even little companies like Caspian Studios trying to figure out who's listening to our podcasts, we use, we use ClearBit. I got to say, it's just a slick product and it is in our stack and has been for a number of years. And again, it's just, it's, it's great for us to try to figure out that stuff. And with our customers, you know, it's really hard to figure out or with anyone, it's really hard to figure out who's listening to podcasts and, and yeah, and ClearBit is one of the things that we use. So even little companies like, like Caspian <laughs> Studios. Well, thank you very much. So what does the buying committee look like for ClearBit? Mm, that's a good question. We actually just did some, some recent work around our personas. So I'll talk to you a little bit about what we sort of figured out from, from looking at customers. We have one set of buyers that are really focused on how that, that context, that data can inform operations. And so they tend to come from rev ops or sales ops, maybe marketing ops. And they're looking at things like, boy, I wish all my systems knew everything about my customers. And I wish that the types of segments or audiences that my marketing automation or my CRM or my even my website chat platform, I wish they, I wish they could all talk about the same types of segments and audiences. And so they look at us for things like that and lead scoring and prioritization from an operations perspective. So we learn to understand what kind of data and how do we make that useful for them. There's another group that is the performance marketer. And so how do I increase the, my ability to precisely target ads? A lot, of, a lot of B2B spending is now going toward more social platforms, especially over the last 18 months. And the type of targeting and the type of tuning to optimize the performance of those systems does a whole lot better if you've got this kind of data. So performance marketers look at that and they also look a lot at the conversion opportunities on the website. How do I make the form shorter? How do I make the content more relevant? How do I get obstacles out of the way of this B2B buyer? So the performance marketer has become a really important buyer for us. And the third one, I get excited about this one, is really the sort of the smart stack visionary, right? Someone who's saying, I want to create a MarTech stack that really serves our business, and it's got to be, it's got to have the right kinds of tools. It's got the right kinds of processes. It's got to be flexible, but not too complicated. And they, they come to ClearBit as the sort of foundation of that stack. And they, they really value our integration with those other systems and ability to power these interactions. So some version of those three people is who makes up the committee. And sometimes it's just one, but it's kind of fun when they're all three at the table. Yeah, for sure. I like that idea, the smart stack that for us, ClearBit, obviously a part of that, obviously qualified our amazing sponsors part of that yeah. as well. Big fan, big fan. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is kind of like the new age, right? It's like, we just, we just have to know as much as we can about the people that we're selling to both from talking to customers, doing all that sort of stuff, getting information that way, leveraging sales conversations, leveraging conversations in real time and, and, and leveraging data. And there's just so much stuff that is that we need to have that foundational data element that it's, it's just more important than ever. And like this data-driven marketer, I don't know how you, you can't be one at this point. 
Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to your point, understanding and knowing who that customer is or, or what's useful to know about them is, is a big part of it. I'm also continually shocked at how much the speed with which you can act on that information ends up mattering. When we do customer interviews and you're like, okay, well, tell me how you're using Clearbit and what really stands out. The number of times that something around being able to capture a customer's intent or engage a customer faster comes up. So they'll say, yeah, when a customer starts filling out a form, say, to show that they're interested, I not only want to make that form shorter, but I want to send an instant note to the salesperson for that account and see if I can engage them on chat before they finish filling out the form. Yeah, exactly. Because as soon as they're done, they're going to go to some competitor site and play the same game. Like it's not even, it's not even minutes, it's seconds in terms of the speed with which they can engage a customer if they have that ability to act on the right information, which is fun. Yeah. I mean, we, we've cited this stat in the past and I, I forget the exact number, but it's like essentially your, your odds of closing a customer is dramatically lower if you respond in more than five minutes, right? It's like you have five <laughs> minutes to respond to a lead, right? Five minutes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. And it makes sense. It's so true, right? By the time you figure in that five minutes, how many other companies did they go, did they go hit, fill out that same lead form and, and go do that? But you're exactly right. We want to know exactly who that person is as soon as they walk yeah. in the door. And then the other thing is we want to reduce friction. Like I know in our podcast use case, I want someone to sign up to engage with one of our podcasts. If, if, if we're going to do an email newsletter for one of our shows, I want them to do that with the absolute least friction humanly possible, right? Like, give me your yeah. email address. I don't care about right. your name. I don't care about, yeah. I don't care about any other stuff. I just want to, when there's a new episode, I want to send it to you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, people are going to use their Yahoo email address or they're going to use all sorts of different stuff. And at the end of the day, we would love to know those demographics. And like, as a marketing team, this idea of this huge form fill to get all of this person's information, it's like, we know yeah. who we're selling to. We don't yeah. need all that stuff. Right. We absolutely yeah. don't need it anymore. Yeah. It's a really interesting point. And we call this part of our, of our platform Reveal. And part of what Reveal does is be able to understand who a business buyer is, perhaps even if they're using that Gmail address, right? Because we can see what IP address they're coming from. We can look across systems and see what connections might be through LinkedIn and other things that get us back to a business context. And we want to do that in a way that is that's respectful of privacy and six to sort of business card level data. But there are things that create more visibility into customers, even at an earlier stage. And a big part of this is just knowing who they are when they hit the website. So even, even the idea of having to focus on the two or even 1% that might fill out a form, what about the 98% who didn't fill out a form, but they came in and they looked at some great content and they showed some real interesting signals around the pricing page or the solutions detail page. Odds are we can tell you what company that was too. And we can look at things like, hey, are several people from that company coming and spending interesting time on really valuable pages this week? Ah, that, what can we do with that information to help meet that intent, right? And focus on that company with our outreach efforts. So that's a big, a big part of that too. Okay, let's get to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Uncuttable. 
So at Clearbit, content plays a big role. Content plays a big role. And the form for us, ebooks and prescriptive content and blogs and customer, what we call recipes around how to use data to achieve these things. And so that is a huge, huge engine for Clearbit. And I think helps us create what we call marketing engaged leads or, or MELs. Uh, how do we get people interested in, in the topics? So that's one. The second, and I'm a little surprised to be saying this at this point in our, our remote world, but webinars, webinars and events continue to be great ways for us to, to sort of meet new people and, and bring people into the Clearbit funnel. It's funny, one hypothesis I have, I don't know if this is right or not, but as an industry participant, I used to be a part of you know, going to a show and just sort of being there and feeling connected and sort of that sense of collectivity. And now I think to an extent, webinars and virtual events serve some of that role. And so they've been really effective for us and I know for others. The last one I would highlight is what we call growth engineering, our free tools. And for us, this is effectively a PLG light motion, but we're able to take what Clearbit can offer and put it into some sort of bite-sized previews that have real value and that can help people explore the potential of data. Our most recent one is called the Weekly Visitor Report. And so you, you know, put a little tag on your website and we can show you, hey, here's the, the top 20 companies and here's what they who came to your site and here's what they looked at and here's a couple of interesting bits about that. Um, it's not the full product, but it's a free way to start to see what that value is and think about whether or not that could be useful for you. So the weekly visitor report has been a really popular addition this year. And that's, that's another big one for us. I love it. Yeah. How do you think about creating content? You mentioned content is so important. What's your content strategy? I think about it from two angles. One is to the extent that the role of marketing is to create a compelling promise that, that then the product can keep. I don't know if I came up with that or stole that from somewhere anymore, but that's kind of how I think about what marketing is doing. How do, I, how do I make a compelling promise to the market that the product can keep? Then the content is, is about sort of making that promise, right? Say, hey, look, this is, this is the opportunity and here's how we think about it and, and letting people explore different parts of, of how that might fit into their business. And so that suggests sort of a lot of prescriptive content and leading people through an, a path of education and, and value assessment. Then at the opposite end of the spectrum, I remember, and this was, this was back when I was working in the Internet of Things, I was talking to a company who'd been very, very effective at building pipeline. And they said, they said, I'll share our secret with you. So we think about when people are trying to achieve the, solve the problem or achieve the thing that we're involved in, where are they going to get stuck? In this case, it was around configuring devices to work together in the Internet of Things. I said, we know where they're going to get stuck. And so what are they going to search for when they're stuck? And I want to be the piece of content that shows up and gets them unstuck. And then I can start to create that relationship. I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. I'm a big fan of the sort of jobs to be done view of how we all operate. And so I think it's interesting to, to apply that to content and say, what jobs to be done can we anticipate people are going to get stuck on and how can our content help them? Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I love the the Clayton Christensen jobs to be done mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. His work there, I think, is is a fascinating thing for marketers. 
in the same sort of way, right? And we think about this when, when we're creating podcasts or, or, or video series or, or anything. Is like, what is what is the burning need that that somebody has for a particular niche, whether that's an industry or a, or a persona or whatever it is? What is the thing that you're trying to create that they can get through this piece of content that that they couldn't get somewhere else, or that this distills it in a more clear way, or that it adds more structure to that, or that it allows it to have even a more long form version of this rather than something short form. And I think that so often, like you said, it's it's like for an individual piece of content or p- part of a series, we talk about the promise that you make to the to the listener or the reader that you're going to deliver every time. Is like, I promise that you're going to learn about X, Y, and Z in this episode or this piece of content, and we're going to deliver on that promise no matter what. And it's going to be high quality and it's going to be, it's not just going to be something that we're doing just to do it. Yeah. I think that's a really important mindset. It, it, what it makes me think of is I'm also a fan of the sort of story brand way of looking at the sure. relationship. And in that sort of, uh, we're not Luke Skywalker, we're, we're Yoda, right? Um, yeah. The role of content is is enabling, right? It's not a like, look how awesome I am. Here's a piece of content that shows yet again how awesome I am. It's like, hey, like I get your problem and I've been fortunate to solve it for others. So if this is useful, for me, that's a much more natural position for the content to take. Yeah, I always say we're Obi-Wan. Oh, that's good. Well, yeah, he's taller too, so it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's funny. I mean, I think that that's exactly right to extend the analogy because we, we use that a lot too, that I think so often you're making pieces of content for all of the different steps along the journey, right? <laughs> Not just, mm-hmm. obviously, we need, to, we need to have content for whatever trials and tribulations Luke is going through. If you're about to fall into the Sarlacc pit, you know, like, how do I, how do I get out of the Sarlacc pit? Just read up on that before I go to. Uh, you know, I really I want to see where this goes. Let's just keep the. Uh, no, totally. We actually had a, a planning session around content just this morning. We're looking at next year, and and one of the things I was suggesting to the team is that in terms of data driven marketing and this creation of of smart stacks to power these types of interactions, next year is going to be kind of a chasmy year. And I realize it's just like bringing book after book here, but I am a fan of crossing the chasm, and I think. As we, as we think about the role of content for the classic sort of innovators and early adopters, the role of content is probably a little different for that early majority, right? Totally. And, and so how do we think about that in a continuum and not something that's a huge shift? So anyway, it's just interesting to think about, right? And what's the role of content? How does it fit into the go-to-market motion and so on? Yeah. You know, we were actually thinking about that recently. We were working with a customer about the idea of is this series going to be 101? Is it going to be 201? Is it going to be 401 level content? Like Mm -hmm. what type, where is the gap needed for your group, right? And like this particular group, they had tons of 101 stuff, but they were like, you know, where there's a gap in the market is really, really detailed 401 level content for people that are like true experts. So there's not Mm -hmm. really anything, there's not books written on this stuff. This is like, we kind of want to blaze our own path on this level of content is like, let's kind of explore some ideas and see what we can create in this. And I think that that's an interesting framing of how you were looking at it is the early adopters, the type of content that they need versus someone who's a much, much later type company, an older legacy company or something like that, or maybe not as innovative. You're right, is totally different. And the the resources that they would need, even from a sales enablement standpoint, they're going to need 
a case study that is exactly like their company, right? Right, right. Same size, same industry, same demographic. Every single thing has to be the same because they're going to their boss and going, our competitor X uses this and we need to be using it too. Whereas like an early adopter is like, they're almost the exact opposite. They're like, I don't care if you have a case study that looks like us. We're unique. We're pushing innovation. It's a great point. And it's interesting. So to bring that to, to Clearbit's piece, we, you know, ICP, the idea of the ideal customer profile is, to your point, maybe a sort of one-on-one level content, right? That is really foundational to how companies think about understanding and, and acting on their ideal customers. But as we look at sort of the 201 and 301 level of that, it tends to be how do I actually focus my funnel on my ICP? And then how do I do it that in a way that's consistent through acquisition, conversion, and operations so that I can actually measure and optimize? And that that's a whole different level of, and of course requires much more actionable data around taking that ICP idea and then applying it and optimizing for it at all these different points in the funnel. So I think thinking about how something like that goes from foundational to sort of the edge of where people are pushing the boundaries is, is again, it's what keeps it fun. So with all of the rigor and data and stuff that we put into content creation, I want to kind of juxtapose that a little bit with, I'm curious how you think about these webinars and virtual events, because I think that at times they can feel perhaps over-engineered, whereas a lot of the times it's kind of like you put people in a room and you get the heck out of the way. So, and not that either is wrong or right, like a very curated event is wonderful to behold, but also an uncurated event is also really nice. So I'm curious, how do you think about your events, digital events, virtual events, that sort of strategy? Yeah, it's a great question. And one that has moved a lot over the last year. I, I think I'm a big fan of dialogue. I, I think part of this remote work world we've been in is there's a a little less dialogue and exchange of ideas and that sort of personal connection around the professional topic. And I think some of the ones that I've been a part of that we've put together, did one not too long ago, I hosted a piece around how ABM and PLG motions are starting to coexist and what does that mean for, for how revenue operations is starting to instrument for those. And basically step back and four or five people from different just and how they're doing, how they're thinking about it and what they're learning and what's not working. And I think that's great. And so we we actually at Clearbit, we are hosting a series of sort of fireside chat sessions this fall called the Slay Your Pipeline series. But yeah, it's just that. Like, let's sit down with three people from different companies and talk about how do you do lead scoring and what works and what doesn't work and what's the right level of complexity and just really talk about the problem we're trying to solve together. How do you view your website? Mm. So I think of the website or I think of the job of the website to start and support a conversation with the market. And so to me, that helps think about what conversation is that? Who's it trying to start it with? How does a conversation tend to start versus how does it get supported over time? And also introduce a certain dynamic aspect to it. Yeah, it's a same conversation with the market over the year, but the focus of that conversation can change, right? And so how do we let the website reflect the way we want to start or participate or lead a, a certain set of conversations in the market over the course of the year and kind of tie that back to the content calendar and the demand gen sources? So I think the role of the website for us and I think for a lot of companies, it's really gone up. I mean, part of this whole digitization or the acceleration of the digitalization of B2B buying is the website 
is where a lot of it happens. And now as we've had things like chat into websites to really bring a uh, interactivity and a conversational element to it, I think a lot more attention to the website is what we're going to see in the next couple of years. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, obviously we, we think about this all the time with Qualified, but it's funny because it's so obvious in retrospect, right? If you were to just go back four years and it's like, man, our websites were like pretty bad, like yeah. pretty dumb, pretty yeah. bad. We're just hanging stuff wherever we were hanging it. Some people had really good ones, but you know, by and large, I mean, especially if you look at the Fortune 500 type, very large enterprise companies where it's like super clunky stuff everywhere. Personalization wasn't even like right. a thought. Yeah. So it's like, what? You yeah. could personalize a website for like different people to be there. So it's just so much of what a website is, is fundamentally changing seemingly by the month. And we've all known that it's like digital storefront, but it's just kind of funny waking up a few years later and thinking like, huh, probably should have been focusing a little bit more of our effort on it that. was shifting. <laughs> it was shifting, I think, more than we realized. Part of my hypothesis for that, now if that's right or not, but as consumers, like as individuals, so much of our interactions have now been mobile and app-based and have become that way, right, over the last five, 10 years. And that's a pretty high bar, right? When I'm interacting with an app on my phone, it knows who I am, where I am, probably what I did the last time I was there. It might even be able to figure out what I'm trying to accomplish. Like, it's really smart and it treats so me true. that way. And you go to a website and it's like, Hey there, you know, I, I mean, it's just, you know, and so how do we start to make websites feel and act more like the type of applications we've come to expect in, in other spheres? And that's pretty high bar. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it's just the B2C websites and, and specifically apps, like you said, are just, it's such a contained environment. And those, those marketers were just so sharp that bringing that stuff over to B2B, I think people were collectively like, how do we do this? Yeah. It's like, yeah, but it's like a multi-million dollar deal and a two-year sales cycle and all that stuff. So like, they're yeah. going to get there eventually. And then you see the stats and you're like, if they hit a lead form and nobody talks to them, it, it actually like, I'm going to lose the deal more often than not. Like, wait, shoot, really? Does the data really say that? And yeah. I think there's kind of that collective like, oh, we should probably be thinking about this. But what's so funny is we spend so much time thinking about SEO and getting people to the site. Right. Doing green button versus red button. What yeah. are people clicking right. on? I think that that sort of stuff, we probably got a little lost. Yeah. Maybe shiny object syndrome or something. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you bring up things like the five-minute follow-up. There's this aggregate data that shows us the the trends of how people are behaving and, and, and maybe even how people in our, you know, that we're engaged with as a brand are behaving. And then you get these really individual stats, to your point. It's like, no, but really, this is a $5 million enterprise deal and these people involved. How do you tie those together, right? How do you how do you make sense of what's going on sort of the portfolio aggregate level and and but then the account, account by account and deal by deal? And Part of what we're seeing companies do, again, is use that idea of, of the ideal customer profile to sort of cut through those and say, how can I understand what I what I believe to be my ideal customers? How are they behaving here, here, and here? And, and what patterns can I start to see? And some things I can't affect, but some I can, right? How do I make it more likely that I'm going to capture or convert intent? The, the corollary to that, and this is something really interested to explore more at Clearbit, is we have this interesting ability to, to not just tell companies everything about a given company and its, its profile, right? But also their whole target market, right? So if you, if you tell me what you're interested in is 
uh, tell Clearbit what you're interested in is companies, financial services companies, more than 5,000 employees in the U.S. and North America. We got them all. And we know a whole bunch about all of them. And so how can we help you not just understand your ICP and what they're doing today, but how can we help you discover your ICP, discover your ideal customer prospects, perhaps, from this, from the whole market, right? The, from your whole TAM and start to think about how you bring those people in and, and get them into the yellow brick road. So it's just really interesting to think about. I'm trying to think about how do we learn the opportunity to discover your ICP and bring that to customers because it's a it's something pretty cool we can do. That's where you look at AI and this idea mm-hmm. of this predictive analysis and saying like, you think that your ideal customer profile is X, Y, Z, but the data shows it's actually kind of more like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of stuff that you could imagine the conversation between the CMO and the CRO sitting there and the, the VP of sales is sitting there like, this is what I'm hearing day in and day out from our teams on the calls. And saying like, I hear what you're saying, but this is what the data shows. That stuff is already happening yeah. and uh, it's pretty wild. Yeah, totally. Do you have a favorite campaign that you've either run at Clearbit over the past six plus months or or in one of the previous times that you were a CMO? Gosh, a favorite campaign. So here's a campaign that comes to mind. This is going way back. This was early days of, of e-commerce. I was a company called Four Point Partners and our head of marketing at the time created a campaign around building. At that point, e-commerce was very new. And what we were doing was helping companies create their very first e-commerce websites. We were reaching out to those, you know, more early adopter side. And the what I loved about it was that the imagery, we were in San Francisco and Fort Points at the base of the Golden Gate Bridge. And all the imagery was like from the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s and sort of, you know, black and white pictures of the construction workers with their lunch boxes sitting on the steel beams of the half-constructed bridge. And, and it just, to me, like both as an employee and as, a, and as a prospective customer in their mindset, like, that's what it is. Like, we're building. Like, we're building the future and we're, and we're, we're part and this is tangible. And so anyway, I think back to that one as the Tapping into a real sense of sort of adventure and discovery and and trade craft around these elements that to me that's kind of what lights me up and so I, I like uh, like thinking about how can we take some of the opportunities we have at Clearbit to get people excited about building what is effectively the the future of the smart stack. We talked about a bunch of uncuttable budget items. What about your most cuttable? What is the thing that you're like, you know, this is something we've been trying. It's not really working or maybe something that you're just, you're giving up on, or maybe you're, you're a little out for 2022. I'm going to answer this honestly, which is I really don't like spending money and what I call the brand defense fund. And that is trying to keep people from buying the clear bit keyword so that they fill up all the first search results. And it's yeah. amazing. And on one hand, and, and if any of you are listening, uh, we certainly appreciate the compliment. And as my team tells me, to have companies literally buying the Clearbit keyword and spending substantial money to be at the top of that, to be ahead of us, um, is, is a real compliment. So I take the compliment, but when I look at the money that we have to spend just to show up in our own search results, it's a little bit of a head scratcher for me. I'm not totally sure why, why, why that should be. (laughs) It's such a great point. I love that you brought that up. 
maybe we need to check in with you next year and figure out how it went. Because I think about this constantly. <laughs> it's one of the things I know that there's really savvy marketers that I've talked to that have shown without a doubt that adding paid to organic, just an SEO in general, obviously boost results and stuff like that. I have no data. I, if anyone knows, feel free to hit me up, Ian at CaspianStudios.com. And if you have some data that shows that like, hey, you should be buying the name of your company, I would love to, we should do a deep dive on that because that would be it. That would be fun. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one. <laughs> no, I think, yes. Think about it constantly. I see it all the time. You know, you Google people's companies all the time. Some people don't, some people do. That's a fun one. All right, let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension. That's with your board, your competitors, your sales team, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career, Kevin? I think this would be a dust up. This comes to mind. I have... I've worked in a lot of emerging industries, right? So I talked a little bit about early days of e-commerce, spent a lot of time in the early social and mobile days, trying to figure out the relationship between social networks and advertising and, and different forms of that. And then talked about the internet of things. And so anyway, back during the, the social and mobile times, I just recently joined a company that was doing sort of social commerce enablement. And I think it was probably three weeks in. And one of the, the leading analysts who I had a lot of respect for came out and said, yeah, that's, that's dead. That's not a thing. And they weren't wrong, but to have an analyst publicly declare your company or your, your sort of segment DOA on like week three, it, uh, it bummed me out. It, <laughs> and so, you know, so begins the campaign of sort of, oh, well, yeah, you know, we actually meant this or you're wrong. And, and but it was a very valuable lesson in that I, as a marketer, you develop a certain antenna, a certain feel for when when there's market pull and when you're sort of trying to push and, you know, pushing a rope into a market. And that in particular was a, a good lesson in what it felt like to sort of push a rope after, uh, after a segment was just not happening. Let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Okay. Just like conversational marketing with qualified, qualified prospects are on your website right now. And you can talk to them quickly with qualified, go to qualified.com to learn more quick and easy just like these questions, go to qualified.com. We love them. They're the best. They've been with us since day one of DGV. Quick hits. Kevin, are you ready? I think so. I, I don't know what to expect. What's one hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? I really enjoy explaining board games. I realize that's really specific, but I, I like board games, but I've come to realize that what I enjoy is the act of like, learning them and then and then explaining them in a way that other people like light up and get it and enjoy it and and invited to every holiday party from now (laughs) until eternity because i love board games but i'm horrible at explaining them it's really hard and so i I say that with humility because it's taken a long time but i've really over years tried to get better at explaining it and tried different approaches and now i think uh i'm 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 pretty good at it uh, that might be the best answer we've ever got. I love it. That is a true hidden talent. That is so good. Do you have a favorite book or podcast or TV show or something that you've been checking out recently? 
Yes. I did do a lot of reading during the last long form reading. And I read a book recently called Major Labels. I really, I really enjoy music and the music industry. And, and in particular, I really enjoy sort of genres, the way genres work and move and change. And so this book, Major Labels, is looks back at, I think, the seven main genres of rock in, in, in American history and talks about how they came to be and how they evolved and sort of where the boundaries formed it. Fascinating. And the author just does such a great job of sort of celebrating, but also commenting on the music and how it fits with, with society at that time and highly recommend major labels. What is your favorite non-marketing hobby that sort of maybe kind of indirectly makes you a better marketer? I enjoy futzing around with technology. If I can, if I can use that verb, I've always been a tinkerer. And so case in point, you know, everything we have here is, is Mac and it's all Mac, but I just went through about six weeks of Chrome. I was like, I'm going to switch to Chromebooks for six weeks, just see what it feels like. And I actually went through three different ones and just, just to sort of what's it like to try to translate that work and this, the data and things into that environment and then move it back out. And I don't know why I do it. Cause I get, I end up getting super frustrated with it. You know, like, ah, I can't, you know, the notes don't transfer. Um, but there's something about that, that I'm drawn to. And that I think, I, I think also makes me a better marketer in that I'm sort of constantly trying to think about different sort of systems and systems design and systems thinking. And so what if we just put this thing together a whole different way? Does it unlock some new way of looking at something? So I guess that's how I rationalize my, you know, obsessive need to break my technology all the time. That's hilarious. So I, I have two Chromebooks that I use and I, I get made fun of all the time by, because I have almost everybody on my team has a Mac, Yeah, but the tabs never crash. Everything that I do is, is browser based. I mean, that's yeah. not true. Not every single thing, but most everything I do, we're also like G suite everything. So like, right. we're like Google's on a Slack yeah. for our stuff. So we're just yeah. so fast. Now, same boat. If Apple messages could somehow show up on the Chromebook, it'd be, we'd be good. Right. But, but it doesn't. And that's all I run into every time. So yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's hilarious. Last question before you get out of here, what piece of advice would you give to a first time CMO trying to figure out their demand strategy? I think it would be try to really listen for and understand that, that sort of push versus pull that I talked about earlier. So if you think about the role of conversations in the market, there's, there's ones you can go start, right? And then there's ones that you can join and, and it kind of needs to be a balance and not coming in with a prescribed playbook or not going too far in either direction until you've really tried to understand where the push and pull are, I guess, where the pull in the market is and where there might be some, some push or some proactive opportunities. I think that's a really tricky balance and it sounds very high level, but in the reality, that balance, I think, ends up mattering a lot in terms of how effective your ad spend is and how effective your pipeline creation is and what life is like for the, the rest of your go-to-market team. Kevin, been great having you. Thanks so much. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? I know you, you all have some really fun stuff coming in 2022 in terms, of, in terms of new product. I don't know if you can give us a teaser here or if we just have to wait. 
Yeah, we, we, we will. I think probably shortly after this airs, we're going to be launching some new capabilities around, around really activating that data. So based on what we've learned from, from customers, and thank you for being a Clearbit customer, trying to, to take those recipes, those ways of applying data to different parts of the customer touch points and funnel and make it even easier to put that data to work and across the funnel. So very excited to launch some of those things in early next year. Well, we are excited for it. Huge fans of Clearbit for our listeners. You can go to clearbit.com and check it out. Kevin, thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.